You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Amen, Brother Josh. You can be seated. At this time, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, um, our, the scriptures and notes are provided for you in your bulletin. Um, there's a a packet of pages uh, there that you can uh, uh, read along with us and fill out uh, to better retain the sermon. Also, if you don't have a physical copy of God's Word, you can download the Version Bible app. That's Y-O-U. Uh, go to the More tab, tap Events after you download it and find Mount Carmel Baptist Church. Click on Today's uh, Service Time, 9 o'clock, and there are all the quotes, notes, and references, you'll have that as well. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and I want to preach a special Independence Day uh, message that I've entitled, God, Government, and You. God, Government, and You. Less than three weeks ago, on June 15th, the United, uh, the United States Supreme Court issued a 6-3 to three decision favoring three plaintiffs who argued that the definition of sex includes sexual orientation and gender identity. Earlier this week, the Supreme Court struck down a few uh, done a law enacted by the state of Louisiana requiring doctors performing abortions to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. They struck that down. The Supreme Court ruled that the law regulating abortion puts an un- unacceptable obstacle in the path of women who want an abortion. When I think about these two instances in particular, I feel often that the United States is following close behind other nations in becoming indifferent toward biblical moral values. What is the relationship between God, government, and you? And I'm speaking specifically to Christian believers. Should Christians protest? Should Christians pay taxes? Should Christians respect all government officials? Should Christians pledge allegiance? What is our civic duty? Should you put your faith in the government? Here in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians living in the center of the epicenter of the Roman Empire in Rome. That's a letter to the Romans, the Church of Rome. Nero at the time was emperor. Now, Nero becomes infamous for persecuting Christians in Rome 
And Paul would have written this book prior to that time of persecution. So there is relative peace in Rome because the persecution hadn't quite yet begun. So imagine what is Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the direction of Jesus Christ. How does he exhort Christians living in, so to speak, the Washington, D.C. area of the Roman Empire to live? Let's read Romans 13, verse 1, just the first verse. It says this, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. The first sub-question that I want us to answer so that we can see the full picture of what is our relationship to God, government, uh, is this. What's the relationship between just God and government? Not our response, but what's God's relationship to government? And the first thing that I want you to write down, and we'll unpack this morning, is this. Is that Jesus... Put government in place. Jesus put government in place. Now, it's important to note that the Apostle Paul is not advocating here for a particular form of government. He is simply affirming government. Law and order against anarchy, lawlessness and disorder. All right? Government does not possess authority inherently. And even in America, we say that, uh, that the government derives its power from the people. And that's kind of a half-truth. Because from a Christian biblical uh, worldview, we understand that any authority has been ultimately granted by God. Okay? So God has put into place government. From a human perspective... Rulers come to power through force, heredity, or popular choice. However, from a Christian biblical worldview, we trust that behind every such process, there's the hand of Jesus. Now, God is not responsible for the sins of tyrants, but only the authority to rule comes originally from God. If God didn't want it, it would never happen. God invests people with authority, but but that does not guarantee they will exercise it as he intended it. And we can see references of that in John 19, 10 through 11, and then ultimately in the book of Revelation. Revelation 13, 5 and verse 7, we recognize that the government in some ways is in so uh, diametrical opposition to the people of God that to go along with the government would be evil in Revelation. It's really interesting. Now, that's God's relationship to government. He has put government in place. He desires that there be law and order. Now, I kind of want to reverse the question. What is the government's relationship to God? What's their response to God? Let's look at verses 3 and 4. We're going to skip over verse 2 just for the time being. I will revisit it. I I usually don't like to do it in in non-sequential order. But for the sake of uh, the sermon this morning, let's uh, skip over verse 2 and go to verse 3. It says, For rulers, these are the governing authorities, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. 
For it is God's servant, that's literally diakonos, deacon, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. So what is government's relationship to God? And it's simply this, write this down. Number two, government should restrain evil. I believe that's the ultimate purpose of government, to restrain evil. Again, from a Christian biblical worldview, and this is, a, this is one of the issues that really do separate us from um, others who view politics and government differently. We believe that every aspect of humanity, our actions, aspirations, our faults, our desires, that it's all tainted by sin. Now, if you're not a believer, the Bible shows over and over again that the one way that you can restrain sin without an inner presence of the Holy Spirit transforming and guiding us is from fear. Fear restrains sin. Without fear, sin is uncontrollable and will rage wild. So God has given the government the capacity to be feared, okay, to be afraid of it. Now, what exactly has God given to the government that, sh- that we should be afraid of? And in the text, what does the text say? He's given them the what? The sword. The sword. Now what does that mean? That God has given the government the right to punish those who violate its laws. That's within their jurisdiction from a biblical worldview. Now for his argument at this point, Paul is assuming, okay, it's not explicit here because you'll have to look at the biblical context from Genesis to Revelation. Paul is assuming that the laws of the state embody the values of God's word. The evil, now remember this, the evil that the government punishes should be evil in the absolute sense. The very things which God himself condemns. So think of it this way. Can the government label something evil that's in fact not evil? Yes, okay. Uh, Can they say something's good that's in fact not good? Yeah, all right. But here's the point. What we're trying to say is government's job is to reflect the moral values of God and then restrain those evil values. That's what ought to happen, okay. The verses suggest here that the wrath that the governing authorities inflict, the avenger, inflicts on evildoers is the same kind of wrath that's being revealed. Now, you have to remember this. All the way from Romans chapter 1, remember it says, the wrath of God is being revealed against unrighteousness. Well, one way in which it is being revealed is through the government. We should see that the government punishes evil doing. And we should look at humanity and say, well, something must be broken. God's wrath must be against us. So the government is here to restrain evil. Now I sped through those pretty fast just to lay down these two significant reasons as to how God and, relate, God and the government relate so that we can get to this 
significant point, and we'll spend the remainder of our time here. What is your relationship to government then? So God has put it into place, and then government all to restrain evil. Okay, where does that put the Christian? And this is where we're going to go back and read verse 1 and 2, and then we're going to read the remainder of the passage, verses 5 through 7. So let's read, go back to verse 1. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Now verse 2, so then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Now drop down to verse 5. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, that's the fear of government, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants. Now, interesting, can I just do this for a second? This is not the Greek word diakonos, but the word where we get our, our word for liturgy. It's also used of the priest in Hebrews. They are the public priests, the public servants, the administers of God's justice. So in some ways, think of it like this. When you pay taxes, it's like paying a tithe to the government. They're working for God. You see me in my uniform today as a minister when they're in uniform, they're also having a priestly duty as well. They represent God. It's interesting. So just keep following this. Are God's servants continually attending to these tasks? They've been set apart to administer justice, right? And then notice this. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Tolls to those who you owe, you owe tolls. These would be like our sales tax, all right? So pay it. Respect to those who you owe respect. That's literally phobos, fear. And honor to those you owe honor. So what is our relationship to government? Write this down and we're going to spend, again, the remainder of our time trying to apply this to the areas in our democracy, okay, in our republic, because we're not looking at a dictatorship like uh, the Roman Empire. All right, Here it is. Write this down. So, so what are we supposed to do? Submit to government. That is clear. Submit to government. And then I think context teaches this, this, with qualified allegiance. So submit to government with qualified allegiance. And I'll explain what those qualifications are. Submit is the same word used throughout most of the New Testament when it talks about submitting to one another. Uh, husbands, uh, wives submitting to husbands, children submitting to their parents, all those types of things. The word submit simply means to place oneself voluntarily. This is not coercion. It's not by force. That's not what submission is. But it's a voluntary choice to live under another authority, okay, that you're going to do as another authority says to do. And notice what Paul says. That Christians are to submit, to obey the government as a matter of conscience. I find that extremely interesting. And here's what I think the difference is. For unbelievers, the influence of why they obey the government is what? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Fear. Right? That's the impetus for why they obey the government. Because they don't want to get in trouble. All right? 
But here's what's interesting that we as Christians ought to see above and beyond just fear is this. We recognize God put it into place. They are actually servants of God, the government is, to restrain evil. And because of government's relationship to God, to disobey the government would be to disobey God. And so now it becomes a matter of conscience for believers. Okay, because we cannot separate God and government in the Christian's mind. Okay, as far as what's owed to them. So, I do have one more quick point of clarification when it comes to our relationship to government. A couple of weeks ago, in my sermon where I addressed uh, the issue of George Floyd's murder, I mentioned a statement that people matter more than property. Okay, And one of the questions that rose from that was this. Josh, is it biblical, is it scripturally um, ethical to defend property... Uh, through force, okay? Uh, And I wanted to just pause a moment to answer that question. Should Christians use force to stop theft? And I think the case, uh, and remember, I've tried to share this with you before, in Mosaic law, sometimes not everything's like an explicit command, like the Ten Commandments. It's generally done through like a case study or a story, and we derive the, the biblical principle or law out of it. And the best instance that I think you can get to the protection of property is, and you can write this down, it's found in Exodus 22, verses 2 through 3. Exodus 22, verses 2 through 3. And listen to what it says. It says, when a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it or sells it, he must repay five cattle for the ox or four sheep for the sheep. Now, just notice this. Remember, these animals are like the currency of that time, right? This is valuable. And notice what happens. Even after stealing something of significant value, here was what I was trying to make clear, and so I'll try again, is that the punishment is not a capital offense. So someone can steal, deface, destroy property, but that does not mean in God's eyes it is actually worth a capital offense. Everybody got what I mean? All right, so notice the, notice the restitution is significant. In this instance, he stole one and had to give back five. So it's significant restitution, but he didn't have to give his own life. That's what I'm trying to say. But notice the next two verses where it talks about the defense of property. So if a thief is caught in the act of breaking in and he is beaten to death, right? so the homeowner goes and, and defends his, his home, No one is guilty of bloodshed. So that, at night, it's interesting, at night if this happens, there's no um, shedding of innocent blood. But then notice verse 3, but if this happens after sunrise, this is interesting, the householder is guilty of bloodshed, essentially murder. A thief must make full restitution. If he is unable, he is to be sold because of his theft. Now, so if he's unable to, to make the restitution, he is sold into slavery for the purpose of paying him back. That's the point. Now, real quick, notice you say, so what's the difference between darkness and sunrise? And here, here's the principle that we're pulling out of it, and it's clear. At, in darkness, the homeowner cannot tell the intentions of the person. Are they coming into my home to kill me or take property? You see the difference? And so when he acts... 
He, he doesn't know the, the specific intention. Now, here's the difference in the Old Testament. The difference here is that in, at sunlight, okay, at suntime, or daytime, he may recognize exactly this person's about to take cattle. They're not going to, to kill me or my wife and my family. And here's what happens. They let them just take it. Why? Because they, he will be caught and will be forced to pay restitution or sold into slavery. So here's the tricky part. And this is what I'm trying to say. Here's the principle you have to pull out. It really has to do with the homeowner's discernment of what, what they believe is the threat or the intention. If someone's breaking into your home and you, you believe that they're there to do you bodily harm, you can use force. Now, let's just imagine a scenario that there's something out in your yard and somebody pulls up, takes it, and runs off. Do not murder them. <laughs> you see the point? Okay, that's the difference. All right, so I do believe Christians may use force, but only when the intentions are unclear about what that person's going to do. If, if they don't, then the idea is that we should let justice, the avenger, the government, pursue them. See what I mean? Let them do that. That's what they're supposed to do. So I hope that clarifies it. It has a lot to do with can you discern their intention or not. All right? Because the shedding of innocent blood, with it being a capital offense, is valuable to God. That's the point. Life is valuable to God. Even a criminal's life is valuable to God. And y'all, can we pause a minute? That's a good thing because we're all lawbreakers, okay? So I want to pause a minute because we sit there and we like to point out other people's crimes. Realize before the most high court, we're all criminals. We're all criminals. Now let's keep moving and get more to these specifics. Now, submission to the government does not depend on how much you personally agree or disagree with the government, all right? Um, and there's a couple of things. One of my favorite stories is in Matthew 17, 23 through 27. I don't have time to read it this morning, so please go fact check me. Jesus actually has a theological issue with paying the temple tax because from Jesus' theological perspective, the temple has become obsolete with his appearing. He's the temple. He is the presence of God. And ultimately, his disciples will dwell. The temple, they'll be the temple, and the Spirit of God will dwell in them. And so he tells Peter, like, we ought not pay this tax because ultimately we're the temple. We're the sons and daughters of the king, and we're the temple. But Jesus makes an interesting statement. After he makes this theological statement, he says, So we won't offend. Go out and fish. You'll grab a fish. There'll be a coin in it, and go pay the temple tax. Isn't that interesting? Jesus understood there were some things that were even greater than just the theology of it, okay? Because he knew that the, the people around him would not understand why Jesus is refusing to pay the temple tax at that point. So he submits to the government and pays the tax. Um, and then Jesus makes this explicitly clear in his teaching, Matthew twenty two twenty one. He says, Caesar's, they said to him, then he said, give then to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. That's the Roman emperor. And to God, the things that are God's. So notice, there is a submission that we owe the government whether we like what the government's doing or not. Now, I'm talking about personal preference. I'm not talking about moral values. You may disagree with the way things are ran at certain times, but we cannot withhold our submission to those folks. Now, what happens if the government is doing something Biblically immoral. 
And this is where we have to go back to Jesus' statement about Caesar. Render to, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Render to God's the things that are God's. Here's what we also take away from that statement. Some things don't belong to Caesar. Some things don't belong to Caesar. Some things belong just to God. So the major question is differentiating between what actually belongs to Caesar and then goes, Caesar is overreaching for things that belong to God. Okay? We see this happen. This is actually not with the Roman emperor, but with uh, Judaism in, uh, in the apostles' day in Acts 5.29. It's a very uh, familiar statement when they told the apostles, stop preaching in Jesus' name. And remember what the apostle Peter said? He says, we must obey God rather than man. If the government told us today, church, stop preaching in Jesus' name, we will not submit to it. Okay? That's not an issue whether we like or dislike the government. You're taking something that doesn't belong to Caesar. That's God's. It's his gospel. And we will proclaim it. Hey, we'll proclaim it to the point not that we would take up arms, but that we would rejoice in the persecution of it. Isn't that interesting? Okay? Let's keep moving. So, I want to ask a couple of questions. Should Christians protest? I mean, quite frankly, you saw in Acts 5.29, that's a form of protest. Hey, we're going to obey God rather than man. Okay? Government is not to be obeyed in, the, in, excuse me, in their demands that conflict with the law of God. Uh, we get several incidents, instances in Exodus 1.17 when Pharaoh wants to kill uh, all of the babies, you had midwives who said they did not fear the king's edict. They didn't respect it. We're not going to kill these babies. Right? Uh, in Daniel 3.18 and Daniel 6.12, you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who will not bow down. And what they say? You can throw us in the furnace. Daniel goes, I'm not going to stop praying. What are you going to do? You can throw me in the lion's den. Okay? Uh, and then in Hebrews 11.23, the, the hall of faith recognizes the faith of the midwives that wouldn't uh, submit to Pharaoh. So there is a place for civil disobedience. Now notice, they endure the consequences because of it, right? But their consciences were held captive to the highest authority going, I got to obey God rather than man. And then, of course, like I mentioned earlier, Revelation 13, 1 through 18, actually is telling Christians in the end times when Satan and the government are so wed together, we're not to participate in that evil government. So it makes it clear there is times for what I was saying, qualified allegiance. Qualified allegiance. Make sure that if you follow a course of civil disobedience, here's where you have to be careful. Because God has put government into place. That you have scripture in context and it is rightly divided. Not just the feeling or something you dislike and you found a scripture that might support it. If you're going to civilly disobey. Okay? To resist government, remember, is to resist God if the government's doing the right thing. So you need to see that. We better, better, better pause for just a second. And then this, the scripture says this, and God will judge us. He takes that into account. What a fascinating thing. He's not just talking about the temporal judgment of the government. He's saying, no, you can come under my condemnation for resisting the government. All right? 
God's people, though, do not stand idly by and say nothing in the face of evil governments. That is never, you go from Old Covenant to New Covenant. The church has no problem speaking out against the evils of the day. All right? And that's the part as a church we have to continue with love and grace, continue to proclaim the word of God. Because everybody will bow their knee to King Jesus someday, no matter what. So evil government calls for the church to have what we call this prophetic warning. We don't mean that we're telling the future. What we're saying is in the same way like the Old Testament prophets warned the evil Israelite kings, our task is to warn governmental authorities of God's judgment. That's different. You're doing something that might bring God's judgment and then work to see reform in the government. That's what we're called to do, to voice that. Now another question, should Christians pay taxes? Should Christians pay taxes? Many Christians think that they can hold back taxes when they disagree with how the government uses the money. Let me tell you right now, we can go on and on about what we think the government should use our tax money for, right? We talk about it. We're not paying taxes, some say, and their reason because the tax money goes to all kinds of ungodly stuff. Now, you need to pause and just think about something for just a second. I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but just appreciate the Bible and its context. Paul is telling Christians in Rome to pay taxes to who again? Nero, Caesar. Now, I want you to think about this. Nero was not using that money to establish Christian schools and hospitals. Right? In fact, we know for sure he spent monies from his people to build temples to false gods and even the imperial cult. Things that Christians clearly stood up against, going, nope, we will not participate in that. And here's what I find interesting. And yet Paul, knowing that full well that the government did that, he said, pay your taxes. And he doesn't ground it, and this is so important, he doesn't ground it in policy or anything like that. He grounds it going, God's put the government in place. Now the government ought to restrain evil. And if that's what they're doing, we owe it to them. And believe it or not, the Roman Empire, in a lot of ways, some people at times appreciated their presence, especially on the fringes of the empire where it was just anarchy and lawlessness. So he's just simply saying, we pay taxes. We pay it. We owe taxes because the governing authorities are God's servants. And their governing is characterized as a service, a liturgy to God. Scripture commands us to pay taxes and respect the government. If we do not pay taxes, we show disrespect for the law, the officials, and the Lord. And this cannot but affect our conscience as believers because we see here in the text it is explicitly commanded. We may not agree, and I don't, with all that is done with the money we, use, we pay in taxes. But we dare not violate our conscience by refusing to pay taxes when the Bible says, pay it. That's it. Now, number three on my third question. Should Christians respect all government officials? 
this last verse here, it says again, respect to those you owe respect. The Greek word is phobos. It's where we get our word phobia. Some of your texts will translate it, fear to those who you owe fear. We are to respect or fear our officials. And I've heard this said, and I believe it's true, but I would qualify it a little bit. And I've heard some of you say it. Even if we cannot respect the person who's holding the office, we must respect, for the country's sake, the office. And I actually think you go a little bit further. It's not for the country's sake. We respect the office because God ordained the office. Do you see that? It always gets back to God for us as Christians in a matter of conscience for us. The respect or fear is not just lip service, but it's actually heart service. God is far more concerned with our attitudes than our uh, hypocritical compliance. I'm talking about when we say fear, what do you feel in your heart about these offices? Let me give you some examples. You ready? And this might be the toughest part of the sermon, so hang on. How do you respond to authority figures, especially ones you don't vote for or like? In a democracy where we have had a say in who governs us, we might, as Christians, feel entitled to speak disrespectfully about our government officials. Now, the Constitution grants that. That's freedom of speech. All I'm saying is this. You better think about how the Bible tells you to address that as well. Okay? Listen to what I want to say. In your conversations between other Christians or unbelievers or on social media or in your heart, do you respect former President Obama or former Secretary of State Clinton like you respect President Trump and Vice President Pence? Do you give them the same fear because they occupy these positions? That's what God wants. Respect. They're serving him. In your heart, do you respect Governor Brian Kemp like you do former Representative Stacey Abrams? They both occupy positions in our government, right? We give them fear that's due to them as a matter of conscience before our God. I'll go one more step further, all right? I'm about to make it real personal, but that's what I'm supposed to do. Have you responded respectfully? No, I'm not saying you have to agree. That's not what we're saying. I'm about just having a respect. Have you had a respect for the government's COVID guidelines? Some of that's a telltale sign that we don't appreciate that God has put the government in place. Yeah, we don't agree with everything, but ultimately God put it in place. And we do it because of Him. That's where it comes down to a matter of conscience. And then last but not least, should Christians pledge allegiance? Should we pledge allegiance to the flag? Should we kneel? Should we stand? Now here's what I want to make unequivocal. I hope it's clear. If pledging allegiance to the flag entails ultimate, absolute allegiance, then don't ever pledge allegiance. Make it clear. If it means absolute allegiance preeminent, first and foremost, above everything, then don't. And this is why I said with qualified allegiance. But I do think this, in most situations, allegiance to God and submission to the government often are compatible. 
Okay, often are. Not all the time, but often. There are times that allegiance to God will diverge from the mandates of the authorities. That's the point I'm wanting to recognize. There are times where, could there come a day where pledging allegiance means to pledge it to something that God does not stand for? See what I mean? Then you have a decision to make. And believers have to choose where their loyalties ultimately allow. Who has your absolute allegiance? Do you see that? We should also refuse to give government absolute allegiance and should evaluate all of government's demands in light of the Scripture. We're going to always do that. That's what Christians should do. Christians should always and only pledge allegiance to the flag with qualified allegiance. It's just qualified. Okay? This means that Christians may pledge allegiance acknowledging subordination in general to the government as a token of saying, we will follow your laws. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But knowing that our allegiance can be withdrawn in a moment's notice if it comes between country or our king. You see, we have a, we're a part of another country, ladies and gentlemen. You have dual citizenship. You're a citizen of heaven simultaneously as you're a citizen of America, the United States. Our first allegiance is first to King Jesus. Okay? So that's who we pledge absolute and ultimate allegiance to. Why can't the United States of America receive my pledge of Ultimate absolute allegiance because, listen church, I am made in the image of God. I am not made in the image of America. I'm not. I don't hate America. I love being an American. But there's more to me than being an American. I'm a child of God. So he receives my first allegiance. And let me tell you this. We serve a jealous God. He will entertain and not tolerate any rival. None. Even even a good country, he won't entertain it in his heart. Okay? We pledge allegiance, I'll say it this way, we would pledge allegiance to this book before we would that flag. And hey, if that upsets you, go check your heart. Okay? We keep the Bible here and the flag at arm's distance. And that's not because we despise the flag. It's because we love the word of God. Right? It has our first allegiance. I will gladly kneel before the flag and stand for the Bible. You understand that? That's our perspective. The Romans. Now, you say this. You say, that's awfully dangerous. Think about this. The Romans didn't persecute Christians because they said, I have Jesus as Lord of my heart. You know why the Romans persecuted Christians is because when they said Jesus is Lord, they knew Christians meant over all of it, including you. (laughs) Jesus is Lord over the presidency. Jesus is Lord over the Supreme Court. They have to understand, your decisions, hey, you're not the final court. You're not. And when you have a community that understands that and is constantly calling those in authorities, remember who put you in place. It's not us. God did. Remember who put you in place. You'll stand before Him one day and acknowledge how you ruled and governed and what you decided. We're we're to remind them of that, church. I have no problem with us reminding them of that. 
Christians should be benevolent, holy irritants to the government. Right? We will obey you and do as you say. Oh, but don't mess with God. All right? A church committed, like what N.T. Wright says, a church committed to the crucified, risen Jesus, living out his life and teaching, is dangerous to a secular society. Yeah. We're going to continue to stand for the word of God. What's our civic duty? I, I would put it down like this, and it's one, one verse. I don't like to ever really reduce things just to one verse, but I think it would be this one. It's Jeremiah 29, 7. You've got to remember, the people of Israel have been disciplined by God, exiled from their homeland, and put into a pagan culture, right? So this is not a God-honoring culture at all. It's far beyond even a secular society. And listen to what Jeremiah tells these exiles to do when they're in Babylon. Babylon, by the way. <laughs> the great Babylon. We know what apocalyptic over, uh, uh, over themes are on that. But listen to Jeremiah 29, 7. Pursue the well-being of the city. You would think, like, overthrow it, <laughs> right? Now, Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives... You will thrive. Now, this is what I don't understand about people. Like, please catch this. If Israel should, should, should seek the welfare of an enemy, pagan country, we should happily seek the welfare of the United States. Right? We should go, we want its welfare. We should pray that God would bless America. Right? We should pray for our officials. We understand. And the church typically, when, when the U.S. government has thrived, generally the church has thrived. So we should seek the welfare of America. Okay? We should give thanks for our government as an institution of God. We should pray regularly for our leaders. Jesus put government in place to restrain evil so we should conscientiously submit to it with qualified allegiance knowing that we do have a higher power and authority. We will obey. Now don't put your faith in government. Please understand, that's not what I'm telling you to do today. Don't put your faith in government. Only King Jesus can transform the human heart society, and the nations. And he is coming to do that. He is doing that presently when people repent of their sins and trust him as their Savior and God. But he will one day come and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, he's King. And they'll also confess what righteousness and justice really is. All right? America, and this is a part we have to understand from a biblical worldview... America will come and go. It will. Kingdoms rise and fall. Empires wax and wane. But behind them all is Jesus. Ruling over and overruling the affairs of men. Wars and rumors of wars, famines and pestilences, depressions and disasters... Jesus has taken them all into account. Taken them all into account. Remember, you are a pilgrim. You are a stranger. You are an alien. You are not of this 
world. You're not. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Christian. And all the things this country affords you, they are not worth having. For there is always a finer country and a better king. I'm going to ask every head bow and every eye close. I want us to do two things this morning. Number one, if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you've not recognized that you're a sinner and that the Son of God, Jesus, the King of the universe, left his throne in heaven to come to this earth, live a sinless, perfect, obedient life to God. And then shed his blood and died on the cross, not for anything he had done, but for all the wrong we have done. In order to forgive us, to transform us, make us his children, citizens of his kingdom, and to grant us eternal life. And we have proof that he can do that because God raised him from the dead and told us to preach forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And if you want to make Jesus king of your life, because he's coming back to be king of the world, you want to submit to him today. I want to teach you right now to pray to King Jesus. Jesus is God. He's not dead. He's alive. He hears our thoughts and whispers. Would you pray this to King Jesus? Say, dear Jesus, I confess. I surrender. I am a sinner. And I deserve your justice. I believe you love me. You came down for me. You died on the cross for all my sins. And I believe God raised you from the dead. Please forgive me. Change my heart and make me a citizen of heaven. With every head bowed and every eye closed, here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you prayed that prayer, the next step in your walk with Jesus is to go public about your private commitment and confession that you just prayed. And the way we go public is through water baptism. When we go under the water, we are identifying that we believe, with, believe in Jesus' death for our sins. And when we come up out of the water, we're, we're identifying that we believe in Jesus' resurrection to a changed life and life everlasting. If you've never been baptized, fill out that tariff panel on the side of your bulletin. Text BELIEVE to 706-525-5351 or go to Mount Carmel's website and click on Baptism. And fill out that form. You're not signing up. You're just giving me a chance to talk to you about baptism. The last thing that we're going to do, Stacy, you're, you're welcome to play at any time, is I want to have this time of reflection where we pray for our country. And I think it, it goes without saying, we should be praying for the country, period, because we're commanded to in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. But church, more than ever, the saints ought to be praying for the time and place we're in. I read this prayer in Stephen McGee's book of prayers, and I just encourage you to pray something like this during this time of reflection. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.